Welcome, language learners. I'm your host, Alexandria, of the Insecurities About Language podcast, where I will explore all types of language journeys from individuals, teachers, families teaching children, and really anyone who wants to have a conversation about language, what it means to them, and how it relates to their life. Also, I will tackle the death of languages within families. Now let's begin. All right, so welcome, Karen, to the Insecurities About Language podcast. I'm super happy you're here. So if you can tell us your name, where you were born, where'd you grow up, and then also some background information about your family's language history, if there's any. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me, Alexandria. This is so exciting. My name is Karen Ricks. And I am the head chef of Our Kitchen Classroom. I grew up in San Diego, California, with two parents who spoke English, and English was the language of our household. But being just a stone's throw from the Mexican border, we used to go to Mexico the way some people decide to go to the mall across town. In fact, I loved going to Mexico. Sometimes it would just be day trips, shopping or extracurricular activities. Um, And I remember doing that as a young child back in the days before we even needed a passport to be able to cross back and forth. So as much as we lived in English in our household, um, Spanish was just one of those other languages within the community um, that was a part of our regular activities and just something that we would hear regularly out and about. So that's pretty much the background or where I started at least. (laughs) All right. So talk about your language background as it relates to school, college, your environment. Okay. Well, um, I actually went to a Montessori preschool when I was very young, the school was run by Pakistani teachers. And so I remember learning how to sing It's a Small World in Urdu when I was, I don't know, probably two or three years old. And it was very interesting that that's one of my very early memories because I have a young sister who went to that same school after I did. And I remembered sharing that with a Pakistani friend just within the last few years. And as we talked about it and I sang through and I remembered the lyrics to the song that I heard so many decades ago. And she was like, wow, your Urdu is actually pretty impressive. And I never studied Urdu specifically, just I remember learning that song as a child. In fact, I also remember learning uh, another song in another language that I never thought I would speak. Um, Sakura in Japanese. (laughs) It's interesting. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. Uh, So language learning anyway was uh, part of my schooling from a very young age. And it wasn't something that I ever really thought much about. That was just what we did in kindergarten. I remember learning how to do a Mexican hat dance and singing songs in Spanish. And I regularly had Spanish classes throughout my 
public school education. Again, language was a requirement growing up in Southern California. And so I always just took Spanish classes because that seemed the most logical to me. I never really thought much about it. In university, I continued to study Spanish and I even had the opportunity to uh, do a little exchange at a different school. It was still in the United States, but I remember that the semester I spent at another school, the Spanish teacher that I was, I was assigned to for my Spanish classes seemed particularly impressed. And I didn't understand why, but as I spoke with the other students who were in my classes at the time, I realized that many of them had been studying Spanish for a lot less time than I had. And again, because it had always been a part of my childhood, a part of my community environment, just part of one of the many languages in which I lived. I never really thought much about it until that point that, you know, people were expressing surprise. And then I was like, oh, I guess that's kind of unusual. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, Spanish has just kind of always been there, I guess. And I've never really thought much about it. So speak about your language journey when it started, where are you at with the different languages you're learning? And then what are your plans with the language? Also, what are your levels if you're A1 through an C2? Okay, well, I guess because of my travels, it really sort of feels like my language journey, as it were, began in 2007 when my husband and I decided to leave our quote-unquote normal lives in the United States and moved to Japan. Now, that was something that was just going to be for one year or maybe two if we really, really liked it, but we ended up living there for 10 years. And so we did a very deep dive into the Japanese language. And as I began to study Japanese, I... I guess I looked back on the Spanish that I had always been surrounded by growing up in a very different way because Japanese was so completely different. Um, I was really intimidated by it at first. In fact, I remembered speaking with a Japanese teacher who had been recommended to me in the United States before I moved. And I remembered asking him, okay, you know, how should I approach this? Where should I start? And for those who aren't familiar with the Japanese language, it has three different syllabary uh, kind of alphabets, if you will. Two of them are native to Japanese and they are phonetic. So there's hiragana and then there's also katakana. And then the third syllabary is uh, kanji, which is Chinese characters and Japanese children generally learn about 1,500 of these characters throughout their schooling. When I approached this teacher and I asked how I should start, I didn't know or understand any of that, but he unrolled this chart that he had of the first phonetic syllabary, which has 46 characters, and he says, here, memorize this. <laughs> and I went, um... 
wait, what? <laughs> and so I looked at this chart full of all these foreign characters and I was just like, yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm never going to learn Japanese. Wow. It's really going to be just as impossible as everybody said it's going to. And so I really, because I was so intimidated, I was kind of afraid to start. Uh, but what my husband and I did at that point was actually pick up a CD set. It was the uh, Pimsler language series. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, it's uh, a wonderful series of lessons that we listened to on the CDs in our car as we were driving here and there and everywhere around town before we actually picked up and made our move. And in just a few short weeks, we were able to do basic things like introduce ourselves, um, do some basic greetings, ask for you know directions to the bathroom. Uh, ordering beer and wine and sake was <laughs> surprising and interesting part of those initial um, language lessons. And then, you know, say something basic, like I don't really speak very much Japanese. Um, but that was really my introduction to the language. And that was all that I had under my belt before landing in Japan in 2007. And in addition to the idea of having three different writing systems and being really overwhelming, uh, the move was huge in and of itself. My husband and I literally picked up and moved to another country without knowing anybody there, without being able to have any greater grasp of the language than this little CD uh, lesson series. And we'd never, we hadn't known anybody who had done anything like we were attempting. So the language aspect of the adventure was just one small part of this big, enormous leap of faith that we took. And it has really been kind of the jumping off point for the most amazing adventure of our lives. And I chalk a lot of that up now to um, the confidence with which we were able to tackle this seemingly insurmountable obstacle of you know, landing in a place and basically being uh, illiterate and incommunicative without assistance. It was kind of a lot to take in at one time. But the fact that we were able to do that has also built up such amazing self-confidence that it kind of feels like we can do just about anything. <laughs> Is that the only language that you've learned, Spanish and Japanese? Well, again, it's interesting because I hadn't really thought of American Sign Language as a separate language. But growing up, my mother uh, did some teaching in American Sign Language. And so she taught me and my siblings uh, a little bit of basic sign. We really started to flourish in finger spelling with each other. And it became kind of a, a secret language amongst us as siblings um, until my mother caught us talking in church and scolded us and sort of discouraged that practice. Um, but again, until I embarked on uh, my language journey in Japan, in Japanese, and then working with young parents who were doing uh, signing with their babies, 
I hadn't really thought much about it. And that was when I began to delve a little bit more into American Sign Language. And I really began to understand the the greater breadth and depth of the deaf uh, community and its culture and the language that encompasses all of that. So I have a greater appreciation for American Sign Language. It's not something that I use a lot of, but I have done a little bit of sign with my son since he was born. And I really feel like, again, beginning with Japanese and then the birth of my son, the language journey has really taken off in an amazing breadth of directions. Um, because my son was born in Japan, Japanese was the community language in his hometown for the first six years of his life. Um, but English has always been the language in our household. So we went a lot back and forth between English and Japanese. But not knowing what other languages or interests or travels my son might embark on throughout his life, um, I also spent a lot of time when he was an infant um, speaking to him and singing to him in you know, all the varieties of languages and things that I had learned. Um, and growing up singing, I had been exposed to other languages like French and German and Latin and things through opera or folk songs or whatever. So I've always sung in a lot of different languages. And so I remember doing that a lot when my son was a baby, singing to him in whatever languages or particular songs I could think of. Um, and then when he was six years old, we sold it all in Japan, packed up our lives, and we became nomadic world schoolers. <sighs> okay, so we began the first of our major leaps in our nomadic world schooling journey from Japan to Italy. And a lot of my Japanese friends were really shocked and surprised knowing that I didn't speak Italian <laughs> when I announced that that was what we were going to do. But uh, my son and I had actually begun playing around with a little bit of Esperanto when he was five years old. It was really just um, about the regularity of linguistic structure something about Esperanto had always fascinated me. And in terms of a constructed language, it was just really kind of a geeky little brain puzzle <laughs> to me. Uh, but my son was really having fun with the gamification on Duolingo and just playing around with a variety of different vocabulary in his mouth. And so uh, we had a fun few months playing around in Esperanto beside before we decided that we were going to make the move to Italy. And so then we added Italian to our Duolingo language list. And we kind of got into a competition as a family to see like who could get the most practice points in Italian. Um, but again, having conquered Japanese at that point to, you know, being communicative, being literate in Japanese, um, the jump from Japanese to Italian felt like a cakewalk. And because of the similarities as a romance language with Spanish, which we already understood a lot of, um, even my husband, who had studied some Spanish and even some Portuguese 
in school as a child. Um, making the leap from Japanese to Italian, that just felt like a cakewalk. Um, and after we had landed in Italy, uh, we realized that our nomadic journey was not going to end there. We were just going to kind of continue. Um, and we have continued to pick up and expand upon and practice new languages as we have traveled all around the world. So in the last five years, we've been to about a dozen different countries on four continents. And so we have uh, I'm in Mexico right now. We're actually back in Mexico for the first time after uh, about five years. So living in Spanish again has been kind of like sliding back into an old comfy pair of slippers. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, it's um, almost like a little brain break, if you will. But most of our time has not been spent in uh, English speaking countries. We have spent time uh, let's see, we went from Japan to Italy and then to Mexico with a brief trip back through the United States to visit friends and family. Uh, from there, we went back to Japan before um, exploring a little bit of Australia and New Zealand. So a little bit of Maori was really interesting there. But in our time in Australia, we also met up with and made lots of traveling friends uh, with people who were from France and the Czech Republic and Poland. So uh, we played around in a little bit of those languages too. Um, let's see, from New Zealand, uh, we actually went back to the U.S. again before returning to Italy. Um, and then we made the leap to Albania. Now that was <laughs> linguistically speaking, the biggest leap I think of all, because Albanian is not related to any other languages on the language tree. Um, Albania is also uh, a pretty isolated country. So that was the first place that we had traveled as a family where uh, we literally did not speak a single word of the language, not even hello or goodbye, yes or no, please or thank you. Those were things that we learned after we landed in country. Um, but again, at this point in our nomadic world schooling journey, we'd become such pros at picking up and moving to a new place that we got settled in pretty quickly, got comfortable and feeling at home within just a couple of weeks of landing in the country and we've made some great friends in Albania who continue to help us and teach us and encourage us in the language. Um, after landing in Albania uh, we continued to travel and explore around the Balkans. So we added Greek <laughs> when we visited Greece um, and again I have to credit the Japanese to making Greek not feel like a big or insurmountable obstacle. Um, learning the Greek alphabet, again, it became more like a fun brain puzzle um, more than anything else. Um, Macedonia, the same again, you know, a new syllabary, some familiar looking characters sometimes. Um, but it's nice to see the regularity and the phonic consistency 
in other languages. And I feel like the more languages we pick up and learn in our journeys, the more, um, the more the patterns seem to make sense. You know what I mean? Um, let's see, Greece, North Macedonia, uh, Kosovo was an interesting experience too. Um, we heard and encountered a little bit of Serbian, but there are a lot of ethnic Albanians in Kosovo as well. And so we really managed pretty easily between English and Albanian. And I think that's all of the different countries that we've been through so far in the different languages. Uh, but having fun, like I said, with the gamification of Duolingo means that I continue to just explore and play around with other languages that are of interest or fascination or just that I'm curious about. Uh, during the lockdowns, <laughs> spent a lot of time exploring new content on uh, different media outlets. And so I got into K-dramas. And so I said, well, why not explore a little bit of Korean? Um, before the world went sideways <laughs> back in early 2020, my family and I had made plans to attend a world schooling conference in Vietnam. And so my son and I spent about six months exploring Vietnamese. And that was really interesting because it's the first tonal language that we had even explored. And as a musician, I love listening to languages. They really sound very lyrical and rhythmic and musical in my ears. And I think that's one of the reasons that I enjoy playing with and acquiring new languages. Uh, but yeah, Vietnamese was a challenge. And that was something, again, that we played around with for a long time while we were planning to travel to Vietnam and then set aside when we realized that, that wasn't going to happen back in 2020. Uh, but I look forward to visiting the country at some point in the near future as the world reopens and we have the freedom to travel in and around Asia again, like we had planned before. And so that'll be a fun one to try to pick up again. Um, but I think if I were to go down the list of all of the different languages that have just I've expressed an interest in or have started, stopped studying, it would probably be more than two dozen. Um, just like so many other things in life, I feel like learning languages is part of that lifelong journey that will never, ever stop. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> what shaped your language environment? Well, in all honesty, the privilege of world travel has really been the biggest guiding factor in our family's language journey. Uh, my son was born in Japan and we established a life during the decade in which we lived there. We went to church in Japanese and we studied and went to the store and all these other things that was all in Japanese. So there was just, Japanese became a part of our regular family life. And then as we began our nomadic world schooling adventures, 
every new country to which we traveled or have considered traveling or have made friends from and are maybe planning to travel in the future. Um, all of those things have kind of become a part of our language journey as well. And obviously some languages have been a little bit easier to pick up than others. Some have greater resource availability and more access, um, whether it's other people who also speak English that have helped to kind of smooth the way. But really, again, the privilege of world travel and this amazing adventure that we've been on has been the primary guiding factor in all of the different languages that we have chosen to learn. That's just amazing. It's very cool. Um, so what is the hardest part about learning a new language? Hmm... Let's see. I feel like one of the biggest challenges that we experience because we are native English speakers is that in many of the places where we go, uh, lots of people want to practice their English with us. Um, I have, I don't know if I would call it a privilege because sometimes it gets me into trouble, <laughs> but uh, because I have a musical ear and a flair for mimicry, I suppose. Um, I have the ability to um, pick up language accents pretty easily as well. And so uh, even if I only know a few words in the language, sometimes people will hear me speak and then think that I must be a lot more fluent than I am <laughs> because uh, people often interpret a lack of uh, a, an American or a foreign sounding to them accent uh, equals fluency <laughs> in the language. So I've had that get me into trouble sometimes. <laughs> that can be a bit of a challenge as well when I have to kind of reel people back and explain that I don't speak very much or to please, you know, speak a little bit more slowly because uh, I don't understand as much as they think I do. And but again, sometimes I have a little fun with it, too, because I can imitate an American accent when speaking Spanish as well, if I really want to convince people not to speak too quickly. What tools do you use? And then what is your study learning method? Oh, <laughs> I have attended a lot of language classes um, in a few different places around the world. And in all honesty... I would have to say that my study methods probably look very unorthodox, especially for somebody who is a professional educator. Um, I suffered through a number of language lessons where we had a textbook and we got homework assignments and we're expected to, you know, fill in the blanks in the workbook and write out these sentences or vocabulary or whatever. And in all honesty, that really just bores me to tears. Um, Duolingo is fun. Like I said, it's, it's almost like playing a video game, you know, the gamification aspect of it, the ability to be competitive with other people. That makes it kind of fun. And it's great for encouraging consistency and daily practice of some sort. But in all honesty, the best language practice I ever get 
is when I'm just hanging out with friends, usually in somebody's kitchen, <laughs> and we're cooking and laughing and just chatting together. And as I learn new things, uh, sometimes I, I carry a notebook around with me wherever I go. Um, and I have a tendency to write things down. If there's a word or phrase that's new to me, or I need a reminder to look up some other resource at a later time, uh, I love to do that. And the physical act of writing something out, like with pencil and paper, not even like saving a little text or something, uh, but that really that connection between the hand and the brain is absolutely essential for me. So I love doing that. Uh, but it's really something that I do when I feel motivated and when I choose to. Um, I did eventually tackle the um, three different character or writing systems in Japanese by spending dedicated time sitting down like a Japanese elementary school student and writing out the characters in a notebook with columns and little boxes, writing like a hundred times or whatever, <laughs> because that was something that I decided was going to be helpful for me. But if I'd had a teacher who assigned me to say, okay, this is your homework and you have to do this. I know I would have been bored to tears and I probably would not have wanted to do it or I would have done it resentfully <laughs> and I wouldn't have remembered as much. Um, I remember doing the same thing actually when we first landed in Orid in North Macedonia for an extended period of time. I remember going to the supermarket and shopping and looking for familiar ingredients. Um, and actually <laughs> throughout the Balkans, I, it's wonderful how many multilingual people there are um, because it was great to see even products in the supermarket labeled in multiple languages. And while none of them might have been English, there were often things that I recognized in Italian or in Spanish or something like that. So that was really helpful. And I remember after the first couple of shopping trips, having a collection of familiar items and pulling out my notebook and writing out a grocery list and going around my kitchen and identifying the things that I had and looking for the things that I wanted. And that was a wonderful literacy practice, a language practice that I just enjoyed doing that was fun for me in Macedonian. Again, if I had been going to some class or I'd had a teacher who said, okay, this is your homework assignment, I would have been like, ugh, I don't want to do it. But that's something that has been helpful. But by far, the most helpful thing in the world is literally just having to communicate with people. I mean, that's what language is for. <laughs> and so because of that, I don't attend classes anymore. Like I have hired people to work with me, but then we go out and we do some fun activity that we both enjoy and we just talk through it. And that's what works best for me. And uh, I love it. <laughs> it's just like living life. In fact, I you asked about language levels. I have absolutely no idea. I don't know what the levels mean. I haven't taken any tests in any of my languages since whatever my last Spanish test was in school. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have any specific levels. I just gauge my fluency, fluidity in the language based on 
how comfortable I am communicating my daily needs. And the longer I live in a particular place, obviously the more those needs grow and the more complex relationships I'm able to develop where I can practice deeper levels of communication with people. All right. So talk about language as it relates to the workplace, your personal life, travel, which you've already done that for the most part, but definitely the workplace. (laughs) Okay. Well, as I said in my intro, um, I am the head chef of our kitchen classroom, and it is both an online and uh, on occasion in-person cooking school that I run from everywhere in the world that we live. And so um, that hanging out in the kitchen and cooking with people, that's both you know my fun, my language acquisition, my social activity, and it's also work <laughs> that I do too. So it's so wonderful to have something that I enjoy doing also being something that people pay me for because it doesn't feel like work at all. It just feels like living the life that I enjoy. And it's great to have um, an opportunity to have people pay me (laughs) to do something that I love so much. Um, So yeah, the more I learn uh, the longer I live in, you know, every different country in which we've inhabited, uh, the more our vocabulary and grammar structure and fluency grows in each language. But some of the first words that I tend to learn in a lot of the languages that we continue to add to our growing Uh, language journey happen to be food related or cooking related. Um, I, everywhere we go, I happen to make friends with, uh, meet up with, work with local chefs, um, stay at home moms, grandmas who love to cook, uh, people who just love to eat. (laughs) And so we have lots and lots of conversation around food and cooking And it's really a lot of fun. In fact, here in Mexico right now, I was just gifted this treasure trove of old recipes, including an entire volume of Afro-Latino recipes that haven't been seen (laughs) by too many people in over 100 years. So uh, part of my language study right now and my cultural and historical and culinary studies include, you know, just pouring over these old recipes and playing around with ingredients in the kitchen with friends who love to cook and other chefs that I'm working with here. And it is just an absolute joy. So would you say language has influenced your cooking or vice versa? Cooking has influenced the language learning throughout all the countries you visited and lived Without in? a doubt. <laughs> um, when I was in Japan, I had a couple of friends who were really diehard cooks. And they wanted to teach me Japanese as much as I wanted to learn about Japanese cuisine. And so we formed this sort of international cooking club. And it was really informal at first. It was just the three of us getting together. Uh, And we'd cook a couple times and then we started inviting more friends to come and join us. And eventually, I mean, we would meet at least on a monthly basis and we did this for years. But eventually, I mean, we would have as many as a dozen different friends getting together and they would teach me Japanese recipes and I would teach a variety of other international recipes uh, and things that I knew. And as we cooked together, I got to really not just hear and understand, but embrace 
the the rhythm and the flow of the way Japanese housewives talk. <laughs> and that is really how I became most conversational in Japanese. And it really deepened my understanding of the cuisine as well. And that's really exactly what I continue to do everywhere we travel. I meet up with people. Eventually, the conversation turns to food, and we dive deep into all the things that people love.、Um, our last trip to North Macedonia, we had a neighbor who really loved the smells. That were coming out of our kitchen. And she said, You must love to cook. I love to cook too. In fact, here, I've got some dishes that I want to share with you. And we started on our own little kind of recipe exchange. And one day she said, You know, our family is doing this special cooking thing. Would you like to come and join us? It might be a little hard because it's probably going to take all day. Is that okay with you? And my eyes absolutely lit up. I was like, Yes, of course it's okay. And so our families spent literally the whole day together. They picked us up early in the morning. And from picking vegetables in their fresh garden to roasting to stirring, cooking literally over a fire in the yard for half the afternoon, all the way through to the dinner that we shared,、uh, I learned the old fashioned traditional process of making this wonderful, rich, Balkan condiment that、uh, many families don't even make anymore. I mean, it's become, it's almost like ketchup, as common as that. You know, you can find it on supermarket shelves and stuff. But this old traditional family practice of making this condiment was such、uh, an annual tradition. Of fun and, and bonding in this family. And it was really a privilege to be welcomed into their family to be able to do that. And then we walked away with our own jar of this special condiment ourselves. And、uh, again, that's helped me to continue to expand upon my repertoire of Balkan recipes, too. Oh, that's just amazing.、Um, so, your love for cooking. Do you have that same type of love for learning a language everywhere you go as well? I really do.、Uh, like I said, tackling languages now, it feels almost like、uh, a puzzle. It's like a, a mental workout. <laughs> And、uh, there are so many fascinating patterns that you find repeating themselves. Whether it's grammar structure and how that carries over from one language to another, or root words and their similarities of meaning, or sometimes how those have changed over the years as they move from one language to another. It's really like a fascinating mental exercise. And as an amateur linguist, I find myself just kind of geeking out about those things sometimes and、um, poring over、um, language. Different language dictionaries、um, as I continue to add to my vocabulary or, or studying the entomological origins of particular words and the ways that they've made them their way into other languages or into the, the way they've morphed into our modern usage.、Um, yeah, it's the sort of thing that's just fun. And、uh, I might be lying. In bed with my laptop, watching 
uh, a movie on Netflix. And I love watching as their library of content continues to expand because I have been exposed to not only interesting cultural and sometimes culinary aspects of a language through their films, but sometimes I also add the extra kind of brain exercise of changing the audio and the subtitles into other languages too. So like I've had a lot of fun listening to um, Spanish from Spain <laughs> and hearing and noting the difference than watching this while watching a particular series, but the same program with subtitles in Japanese <laughs> or in Korean so that I can just continue to practice that uh, reading aspect too. So what keeps you motivated to continue the learning process? Well, part of what made learning a new language so challenging at the beginning, I think is part of what continues to motivate me moving forward. I feel like I'm a pretty articulate individual in English and I have a lot of thoughts on a variety of different topics. I love to communicate with people, to express myself. Uh, but that was severely frustrated when I first landed in Japan and didn't have the words, literally did not have the words to express myself. Um, and so it's a daily challenge, really, um, to acquire the same sense of confident communication in other languages that I feel like I have in my native language. And Again, I feel like that's why it's a lifelong process because there are days when I can't find the words in English <laughs> to express my thoughts and feelings and emotions. But uh, just like I have fun playing with um, alternating words in a thesaurus to attribute a different nuance or tone to the words and the turns of phrases that I use, it's an ever-expanding process in every other language that I tackle as well. And I don't expect to get to whatever that height is where I can say yes with confidence. I am fluent in 20 languages. <laughs> no, but I feel like I could confidently be dropped into countries in probably half a dozen different languages. And I know I can get by. I can conduct my daily life. I'm not going to starve. <laughs> um, and even now in places where maybe I don't speak the language, I don't yet know anything about the history or culture. Again, having done that before when we landed in Albania and we're completely unfamiliar, I know that it's not a binary yes or no, I can or I can't. It is a process. And this is something that I can learn and I can improve upon. And it's always just a constant sort of personal challenge to learn and grow more and to communicate better with everyone that I meet, no matter what language they speak. All right. So this is a podcast about insecurities about language. So what are your insecurities about all these languages? Oh, goodness. Well, <laughs> there are the personal insecurities, obviously, this fear of uh, isolation or um, abandonment or just 
not getting one's needs met because you can't understand or be understood. Uh, but in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm on parallel journeys <laughs> because as a parent, part of my responsibility, homeschooling, world schooling, you know, with a young child in my charge is the passing on of language too. And it's interesting because I've never had any fears about transmitting English to my son, not only because I speak English, my husband speaks English, but because even when he was growing up in a non-English speaking country, English is such an overwhelming presence everywhere we've been in the world that it just seemed inevitable that, of course, he would learn English. But I have this added pressure of, well, can he communicate in other languages too? And so at first I found myself kind of pushing in the ways that we tend to do as parents because we want to make sure that the things that are most important to us are also transmitted to our children. But the more we continue to grow in this nomadic, radical, unschooling sort of world schooling lifestyle that we live, the more I am reminded that just like my journey is lifelong, so is his. And so there doesn't have to be any special pressure, especially from me, to make him accomplish some sort of randomly arbitrary goal by some set age or schedule, according to anybody else, because he knows how to learn. And just as we have all learned and continue to learn and grow and adapt every time we pick up and move to a new city or a new country, that is the most important skill that I can continue to nurture in him. Not only his ability to learn, but his confidence in himself that he can learn whatever it is he needs to learn whenever he needs to do so. And so we continue and we adapt and we survive and we grow and we're thriving everywhere we go. And the language is just uh, one aspect of that amazing journey that we're on. Uh, so how has learning all these different languages uh, helped you in your native language? That's an interesting question. Um, I remember the first time a multilingual person told me that they couldn't remember a specific word or phrase in their mother tongue. And I laughed. I thought, oh, that'll never happen to me. I'm not that good at, you know, XYZ language or whatever. <laughs> um, but I think it's really interesting sometimes that um, an outside party might um, come in at the wrong or a very strange part in a conversation within our family and be very confused by the number of different words or phrases from a variety of languages that are just a part of our daily usage. <laughs> uh, I often tell people, you know, as much as I love to cook, food is also its own language. And there are foods that are so much a part of a particular country or culture or people's culinary heritage that they don't even require translation. And people are like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, what's the translation for sushi, for example? 
Sushi doesn't need a translation. Sushi is sushi is sushi, whether you're speaking English or Spanish or Japanese. And it's the same for tacos here in Mexico. And um, so there are certain food words, especially in my brain, that I never translate or that I always use in a particular language because that's sort of the language they are in, in my brain. But with each, I feel like, again, the almost arbitrary um, delineations between what has to be English in my brain and what has to be some other language, those barriers are a lot more nebulous because it's all a growing part of the vocabulary that helps me express myself in whatever language or context I need. And so I find that rather than necessarily helping my English, I feel like the learning of other languages helps to expand upon my understanding of English, not only as a language and as a structure, but even as a way of thinking. I think differently in English than I do in Spanish or in Japanese. And in fact, I was reading a very interesting uh, research paper recently that talked about how people's eye movements are literally different when they're speaking and thinking in particular languages. And I found that interesting to note that the way in which we use language can literally alter our physical expression, the movements of our eyes, the things that we see and notice. And that makes sense to me in a lot of ways, because the words that we use really shape our thoughts, our expressions, even our expectations of the world. And so it's caused me to do some extra thinking, even about the way that I think and in which languages. <laughs> so one of my Fun questions. <laughs> um, what is your favorite word, favorite saying or phrase in all the languages or just in Japanese? And if you can say it in that language and in English. Okay, well, I know this is not specifically what you asked, but I have to start with a sort of pet peeve of mine in Japanese. And that is with this phrase, shogunai. Shogunai is kind of a I don't know. It, it really feels to me like uh, an expression of giving up, of oh well, of it. it is what it is. In the most direct translation is usually kind of expressed as it can't be helped. And that's really, I understand having lived for a decade in Japan that it is a very cultural way of thinking, but to me personally, it's also kind of defeatist and depressing, really. And so, uh, as you know, I have a tendency to try to express things sometimes in a way to sort of shake things up. And so whenever somebody would say, ah, shogunai to me in Japanese, I would always counter with, ie, shoga aru yo, which 
technically the direct translation means oh no actually there is ginger because shoga also means ginger in japanese and ginger is one of those ingredients that i tend to have in my kitchen all the time anyway <laughs> and so when i would say that my japanese friends would laugh and many of them would also say well of course yes karen because you're weird and you're different and you always do things differently <laughs> um but it it's a reminder uh, to me personally, I say it always to remind myself, but I like that it also reminds the people to whom I'm speaking that we don't always have to do things the way they've always been done. <laughs> and um, there is often when we take time to step back and think about it another way. And sometimes that way can be a lot better, <laughs> even if it shakes things up a little bit, which is pretty taboo in Japanese. Um yeah, so like I said, that's a personal pet peeve in Japanese, but also kind of a fun way that I get around that. Um, but I remember talking about how I shared linguistics in the form of songs and speaking when my son was a child. And I know in Spanish, one of the things that I used to say to him all the time, because it would inevitably evoke gales of giggles. <laughs> I would say, rápido corren los carros de ferrocarril. <laughs> and in Spanish, that just means the railroad cars are running fast. But um, it really uses the rolling R that, you know, some people find challenging if Spanish or a language that rolls the R's like that is not one of their first languages. And Again, as an amateur linguist, I had been studying a lot about the acquisition of languages, especially in young children. And I remembered reading how important it was to hear and see uh, people's mouths moving in different sounds in order for that part of the auditory brain development to stay active in young children. And so I love that he would laugh when I would do that, just like I would count in, in Spanish to him. And every time I would get to 10 or 20, again, gales of giggles. <laughs> so I loved sharing that with my son when he was a baby. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, and then more recently, I've been playing with Swahili. And there is a greeting in Swahili that just sounded so mellifluous. I said, I have to add that to my regular vocabulary. And it's a single word. And the word is umelalaje. Isn't that beautiful? The way it just rolls off the tongue. Umelalaje. And it just means, how did you sleep? And I feel like that's just such a wonderful and kind and caring expression. So when I wake my son up, um, whatever, he tends to wake up sometimes. It's pretty late into the day. Um, but it feels like a, a very kind and gentle acknowledgement that the way that you greet the day might depend on, you know, how you spent the night. And so it's kind of a gentle inquiry. How did you sleep? And so I've taken to greeting my family with that when we start speaking to each other at whatever that first point in the day is. <laughs> so thank you so much, Karen, for being on the podcast and answering all the questions and making me feel differently towards languages in the sense that it makes you want to like fall in love with it. <laughs> I don't know. It's maybe though your tone of voice and how you talk about languages and cooking 
and you just sound so in love. And I'm sure there's somebody out there listening that probably feels like that. That sound is so corny. No, it's but... not corny at all. <laughs> I I am in love with languages, with food, with the beautiful ways in which they're all intertwined. And so it makes me very happy that that love and that passion has really come through in our little chat today. So thank you, Alexandria, for having me on your podcast. This has been fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Insecurities About Language podcast. Please make sure to follow, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. And follow the podcast on Instagram at Insecurities About Language and say hi.